Hi, this is Gary Meese with the case against. I'm going to be going over chapters 8 and 9 in my book, The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. Um, I have three books about the West Memphis Three case, a two-volume set, uh, uh, Blood on Black and Where the Monsters Go, and then a, a third book, which is a combined, condensed, somewhat revised, and arguably more readable version called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers, which is what I'm currently uh, reading through in the podcast. Before I get into the book, uh, I do want to make note of several things. Uh, this last Wednesday... It was May 5th, uh, it's the 28th anniversary of the killing of Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch by Damian Nichols, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Muskelly Jr. Um, I, you know, I don't, I think about this not just when the date rolls around, I do think I, I, when the, their birthdays come up and re really very often I'll think about uh, the fact that these were lives that were interrupted in a horrible fashion, interrupted and ended in a horrible fashion. And these boys never gr gr grew up to do the things that they would have done otherwise, except for Baldwin, Muskelly, and Eccles. Um, and it's quite disgusting that the world treats those three as the heroes and these three little boys are you know Bob Ruff and I don't agree on many things but you know I think in some ways the, the, the victims not just in this case but in a lot of other cases are somewhat forgotten um, certainly, certainly not forgotten by me even more so not forgotten by their families their friends and uh, and there are people who follow the case who are are very, very emotionally attached to boys that they never met and probably never would have met. Even if they if they lived, they would have just grown up to be teenagers and men. And you know, at this point, they would have been moving into not quite into middle age, I suppose. But they're they were going to be getting there before long. And uh, it, it's really quite sad. The, the other thing, I, I, the, the two other things I want to mention. Um, this week, Pamela Metcalf, uh, who's also known as Pamela Eccles, or Pam, and she's also known as Pam in all these various iterations, and she's also known as Pam or Pamela Hutchison. Uh, the mother of Damien Eccles died. She'd been ill for quite some time. Uh, I gather she probably had uh, was CPD or something like that, emph emphysema or something like that from a long time smoking habit, but uh, had been in a wheelchair for quite some time. I don't know. Uh, you know, I've looked around and I've didn't really get, uh, you know, I, I did get confirmation she's dead, and certainly her family, close family members, Michelle and her children and grandchildren and their friends are all, are all uh, you know, remembering her and mourning her, and uh, we don't, I don't wish, Ill, I don't, do not wish ill on any of those people in any kind of way. I feel somewhat sorry for them in the sense that they're married to a scumbag like Damian Eccles and so they're sort of stuck with a label that they did nothing they either did nothing or very little to bring upon themselves uh, maybe they could have been more helpful to Damian as you know maybe his mother could have been a better mother but she didn't seem to really be capable of that and she did not seem she did not seem unintelligent in fact everybody in that family seems relatively intelligent uh, 
as opposed to the the Skelly family and the uh, Baldwin family, who basically range from being really not very smart to being really downright very stupid. Jesse Miskelly Jr. probably is the low end of that. So he's a very stupid man. Um, nothing he can do about that. That's not his fault. What he is responsible for is what he did. He does have moral agencies, and he is responsible for what he did as a child, and he's responsible for what he does today, which is basically not a whole lot, apparently. Um, and speaking of Jesse Miskelly Jr., his, he, he, there's a junior and then there's a senior, and the senior, big so-called Big Jesse, uh, it wasn't really that big, but he was a brawny guy, very strong, it, it somewhat forceful personality in some ways. Uh, died this last year, also after you know a long illness. Uh, somebody who'd been a life of hard, you know, he'd been a hard drinker, living hard for a long time. Probably as lucky he made it as long as he did. Uh, Mrs. Metcalf died at a relatively, what I consider to be a relatively young age of 62. Uh, Jesse's dad lived to be, I, I didn't look it up, I think he's 78, something like that. So, you know, he lived really a pretty good while. And, uh, so we had that death in this just not, not that long ago within the last year. And then last June we had, I believe it was June. No, it was June or July. We had the, uh, the death of uh, John Mark Byers and sort of a typical John Mark Byers fashion in which his life, which was always seemed to be sort of spiraling out of control, spiral, spiraled out of control one day. He was racing back home to get to his oxygen, driving a car. He, did, he wasn't supposed to be driving. Uh, racing back home to get on his oxygen tank on a, apparently a windy, dangerous road in uh, North Shelby County around Millington. I guess there are a few roads. I mean, I've been up that way a lot at various times in my life. And uh, I, there are some roads that are, you know, more hazardous than others. But generally speaking, I don't think of that. We generally don't speak, think of those roads as being hazardous because most of the area up there is pretty darn flat. But there are some hills up there and some places where the roads just aren't perfectly straight. He got on one of those roads, lost control, and and died in a really a very sad, tragic way. And he was a relative, relatively young man as well. So we've had three major players in the last year die in the West Memphis Three. It's been 28, it'll be 28 years. So it's uh, somewhat understandable that some people might die along the way. And uh, I think in a lot of ways, all three of those people seem to be hanging on longer than a lot of people thought they might, given their health conditions. And, and but in any case, I um, offer my condolences to those families. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, like I, I have to admit, I was a little curious about Damien's reaction to the death of his mother. I've seen. He used to have a, he had a, he still has a Facebook page. I think I'm blocked off of it. I hadn't really checked lately, but, but uh, I'm not sure he can actually block me, but I think he might have. But anyway, uh, he, um, he used to, he used to uh, post quite a bit on there and occasionally his mother would get on the page and she'd go, hello, son. You know, no response. I sure do miss you. You know, no response. And maybe he called, maybe he saw that and he called her. But my impression is he did not. Just as my impression is he has nothing to do with his son who is, as far as I know, is in Arizona. Last I heard, uh, grandchildren out there that I don't know that there's any sign that he's ever seen or shows any interest in in. He has a sister, Michelle, and a father <coughs> who lives in 
excuse me. <coughs> really didn't mean to do that. And that's, that coughing is one reason I've been off the uh, podcast thing for a, a bit, but uh, that snuck up on me. His sister Michelle lives in uh, North Mississippi, and his father lives uh, in Alabama, last I checked, which wasn't that long ago. Uh, and he doesn't seem to have a whole lot to do with any of them. In fact, it seems like he has nothing to do with any of them. Uh, and he speaks pretty disparagingly of his family when he actually speaks to them at all. Some sympathy with the fact, you know, he uses them as one of his means of gaining sympathy about being this poor, poor family. You know, they, we didn't, he, they didn't have anything and nobody had gone to college. <laughs> I think his father actually did go to college a bit, but didn't didn't follow through and do anything with that, which seemed to be sort of typical of uh, Joe Hutchison. Anyway, um, that, uh, uh, you know, I, at this point, you know, I, I was curious to see if Damien was actually going to, you know, go to his mother's funeral or if he was going to be mentioned in the obituary. There may be an obituary out there, but I dug around the usual spots you'd expect to see an obituary from that area. I didn't see it. Uh, maybe they chose not to post one for whatever reason. Uh, it cost a little bit of money. They never seemed to have any money. So... Um, it's quite possible it just sort of went by the way. There's usually a perfunctory mentioned somewhere in uh, like the local newspaper, but commercial appeal, I looked through there. I didn't see it. It doesn't mean it. maybe I missed it. Did I miss it? It's possible. But um, I didn't see it. And so I don't, and then, you know, looking at some social media things, it looks like Damien at least acknowledged privately to a few people that maybe his, you know, his mother was dead. So he's aware of it. That's probably about the extent of his involvement in that. And, you know, in a certain sense, he's entitled to that. It's his mother. I don't have any real strong. Uh, incentive or even rationalization for speaking too much about that except it does go to back to something to the case history his mother was heavily involved in uh, the crafting of his very poor defense um, she managed to cast uh, I'm not trying I'm really not going to dump on her but I just want to tell her I want to remind people she testified and because she had described this scene that supposedly went on uh, the day before the killing where her, she and her recently re reunited and recently remarried husband had had a big argument uh, the night before the killings and his, he had moved out and Damien was crying about it. Uh, it seemed like it might have contributed to some of the tensions that might have led to the circumstances in Robin Hood Hills the, the, the next day. Possible there was some, a great deal of anger going on there. Uh, however, she changed her story and said, oh, you know, that happened then. and then, Oh, it didn't happen then. It happened another day. And the other day would have been actually the day before she first described it. So, you know, she gave the she was not a credible witness. Let's put it that way. She was also the one who came up with his very poor uh, and discrediting uh, alibi about the visit to the, uh, uh, the the famous Beverly Hills 90210 visit, where he, they visited a family friend and the, they watched Beverly Hills 90210 prom night all together. A very touching scene that almost certainly never happened. And uh, she came up with that. That was discredited at trial. Uh, Mr. Ms. Skelly Sr., Je Big Jesse, he was a really a very strong advocate for his son. And 
he had a lot to do with crafting aspects of that alibi that that uh, Miskelly attempted and he also made some claims in his testimony about being home at a certain time and seeing Jesse at a certain time and he was in a DUI class at the time and with an instructor that came in and said no he wasn't home at 7 o'clock or 7.15 he was it was much later than that so he was discredited at the trial so these parents did not do their children any favors by making up these stories uh, but I you know it's hard to fault parents for standing by their children some people would do that some people would fault them confronted with your own child being in, in, in whatever, you know, fighting for their life, how would you react? I don't know. My tendency would, would I, I think, knowing me, I think I would try to be supportive, but not support the lies. It's, and that's a hard, hard, It's a narrow blade you're walking on there. And, you know, it's a very narrow line you're walking there, being supportive, but, you know, not going along with the story. Maybe not making it worse. Don't pile on with, oh, he wasn't home at all. You know, if they want to come try to come up with an alibi and you don't have any help for them, just don't say anything at all, which is kind of what Joe Hutchison did. When he got around to trial, he, could, he didn't really want to testify that he didn't testify about – about uh, Damien's alibi. He waited and, you know, gave a testimony later in, in the uh, sentencing phase to try to build up some sympathy for Damien. And didn't really succeed there either, but at least he tried. Um, the other thing I want to say that was very peripherally related to the West Memphis Three case was uh, watching a series on uh, Netflix based on Maury Terry's book, uh, Ultimate Evil. And, you know, and it, ha it has to do with uh, Son of Sam, alleged conspiracy behind Son of Sam that involved, you know, a network of Satanists who were also pedophiles. And this has some, <laughs> it has some pretty obvious parallels with the pop, at least the popular image of the West Memphis Three case. Uh, I, I mean, I don't find it. I find it would be, I would not find it credible at all if people said, well, there is no network of child molesters because my understanding, without knowing really anything about it, <laughs> I mean, you, you really don't want to be doing research on on uh, child molesting and child porn. <laughs> you don't even want that showing up on your computer anyplace. I know pretty much nothing about it except it exists and there are networks there of these people who send materials back and forth and presumably do more nefarious things involving actual children. Uh, I mean, more than presumably, they do do that. I, and that, I have no reason to think that doesn't exist. So there is that network. Does that tie in with network of Satanists? I'm not sure there's I'm not sure there's any evident real evidence that that's the case. But you have to under figure that Satanists, uh, at least the way it's often presented, is you know they they are their whole thing is to be transgressive, to go beyond the bound you know the bounds of the morals of you know, most people, society in general. And it's really quite humorous when you see, uh, and this comes up in the West Memphis Three case, people will get on various boards and forums and so forth and say, well, Satanists don't kill people. You know, the Church of Satan specifically rules against this. <coughs> well, you know, the, the, the whole foundation of the Church of Satan is that they're, you know, they're transgressive. They're not bound by the, mor the morals of the petty bourgeois society. 
they form their own own morals and you know and they posit this as some sort of heroic mode of being um, and so Lucifer you know the light bringer is you know a, a, a force to uh, be followed and looked to as an example you know they th and they throw in Prometheus and and you know and Satan himself is you know and the, the enemy but what is the enemy of and according to them he's the enemy of all those things that hold us back from becoming who we really are in some sort of vaguely Nietzschean sense. Uh, or maybe it's, it's not explicitly, it's implicitly Nietzschean, uh, at least a, a popular understanding of Nietzschean. I'm sure Nietzsche himself would be appalled by being labeled of that. He... Uh, and part of, what, part of what I'm saying is the idea that Satanists, oh, Satanists would never break the law. Satanists would never kill. Satanists would never rob. Well, you know, that, because the Church of Satan specifically prohibits uh, harming children and animals and so forth. Well, the Church is, this is, you know, it's basically cover your ass time with the Church of Satan. It gives them a, an element of plausible deniability, and Satanists actually do go out and torture children for some sort of ritual purpose or just for plain old fun, which may have happened in the West Memphis Three case. Uh, they can go, oh, well, you know, we, we don't support that. You know, of course, members of the Church of Satan didn't have any trouble going down to Los Angeles and supporting Richard Ramirez, one of the most horrific killers that's ever uh, stalked uh, a large city and held it in a reign of terror, not and very similar to the Son of Sam and, and, uh, and actually more disturbing in a lot of ways because he was not bound, he seemingly wasn't bound to a certain method or a type of victim. Basically, he was ready to spread his evilness and his satanic uh, devotion on everybody. David Berkowitz is a different case. Uh, the, the, I found, anyway, I was going to say the Netflix series is very interesting. It, uh, I, I, I found it, you know, compelling viewing, but a lot of what I saw in it was a character study of a talented journalist who basically got sucked into an obsession and got fixated and focused on finding connections. Some of, and, and some of the, and there are admittedly strange things that happened around the case. Were they all connected? Were the series of strange deaths, were they just, was that coincidence? It, it, it does seem like it's beyond what should be coincidence. <coughs> but at the same time, to go beyond that and say, well, this is part of some vast satanic conspiracy is quite a stretch in my opinion. I, I think there was, I think there was something else going on there with Berkowitz and maybe the Carr brothers. Uh, it doesn't seem that unlikely, but even that is speculation. I really try to stay away from too much speculation with the West Memphis Three case. I don't want to turn into not that I'm uh, going to be coming, going to become Mari Terry, but um, I'm too old and burnt out to be that. <laughs> but the the fact is is. Uh, I try not to get too much into, you know, it's hard not to do a little bit of speculation and a little bit of wandering, but getting too much into the, to, oh, yeah, this was a case of, it was definitely a case of uh, ritual murder of these three little children. You know, I don't know. I, I will say, I will say, I don't know. It certainly bears a 
lot of trappings of a ritual. It was certainly a ritualistic murder by somebody who is very involved in occult ritual. So what kind of conclusion am I supposed to draw from that? That there's no connection whatsoever? I don't think so. At the same time, am I supposed to think that Jesse Miskelly Jr. saw that as a, as a ritual murder? I'm not sure Jesse Miskelly Jr. is capable of even understanding what ritual murder is and what it might signify. It really requires a higher order, order of thinking than he is capable of. And I'm not sure that Jason Baldwin is smart enough to really comprehend it either. He might be, but I am not so sure about that. I know Damien is smart enough to do that. He's no genius, but he's not stupid, uh, unlike his buddies. The Getting back to... Getting back to the, the Netflix series, I, uh, you know, I recommend it as viewing, and I think it's interesting that the, the, all these cases from, you know, from the 80s, 70s, 80s show up again and again as if, you know, they acquire sort of a mythic uh, status that more recent cases really don't. Son of Sam, Night Stalker, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, those names sort of, everybody knows who they are. They sort of roll off the, roll off the lips. More recent cases, even the Golden State Killer is not, is not from this era. It's from an earlier era. And, uh. And he, that hasn't acquired, despite of the horrific nature of all his crimes, that hasn't acquired this kind of status that uh, those, those other names have. Uh, it's kind of like rock music. It's kind of like the music scene. It's like all the greatest hits seem to have happened 30, 40, 50 years ago. I don't know what you do about that. Uh, maybe it's a, just a sign of a society in a certain stage. Or maybe I'm reading too much into it. And speaking of reading, I'm going to go on and before I go off into the weeds myself and say something that sounds even dumber than the stuff I've already said, I'm going to uh, read uh, part of the book here. Um, I, I wanted to preface, there was something about the ultimate enemy ultimate evil that I really wanted to make the connection with, with the West Memphis Three case, and, and right now I didn't write it down, and it's eluding me, so I'm going to go ahead and read this, and if I think of it toward the uh, while I'm reading, then I may come back to that. Uh, this is Chapter 8 from the book, The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers, which is available on in print and Kindle format on Amazon. Damien Echols' history of violence gave credence to an ability to torture and kill. According to his discharge summary from Charter Hospital in June 1992, supposedly Damien chased a younger child with an ax and attempted to set a house on fire. He denied this behavior. He reported that his girlfriend's family reported this so that they could get him in trouble. He was also accused of beating a peer up at school. Damien admits to a history of violence. He said prior to admission he did attempt to enucleate a peer's eye at school. Oh, you know what? I read chapter 8. I knew I had. I'm, I'm going to read 9 and 10. Sorry. <laughs> Chapter 9, uh, Damien Eccles was notorious for walking everywhere, often in a black trench coat. Speaking of, what, speaking of the black trench coat, the black trench coat, he was seen everywhere with that black trench coat. And yet, no black trench coat was found and with the search warrants of 
went to his his home uh, with his parents, where he sort of de facto lived over at Dominique Tears ha- uh, trailer and uh, or Jason Baldwin's trailer, which I'm not sure they found that much stuff from Damien there, but they did go through the trailer and collect things. So where was the black trench coat? Supposedly there was some sort of coat meeting that description that was found uh, close to the um, murder scene. Uh, picked up by somebody, wasn't presented to police. Uh, Steve Branch Sr. apparently had it at some point and was going to return it to the scene and then it just sort of mysteriously disappears. And I don't know uh, if that was a black, black trench coat. And I am going to apologize for that noise. Uh, spam caller. Anyway, um, uh, so we, we don't know really what happened with that black trench coat. But uh, Damien definitely had one. He wore all the time. And he testified he walked around West Memphis frequently and was in the area where his victims lived, according to his own words here quote, probably an average of two or three times a week, unquote, over, quote, probably at least two years, unquote. Damien was very familiar with this area where the boys were killed. He walked through there two or three times a week. And let's understand what we're talking about. We're talking about Damien going from uh, from West Memphis over uh, crossing uh, – Taking this what amounts to the only real viable shortcut between where he lived and where Jason Baldwin lived was going through that neighborhood over that pipe that was over the 10-mile bayou through, through those woods up by Blue Beacon uh, Truck Wash and then go on to uh, uh, Lakeshore Estates over uh, on the other side of the two interstates. So he had, he went through there all the time. He walked a lot, and if he he didn't go that way, he was going to have to go along. He can you can get there other uh, in other ways, but none of those other ways are nearly as fast, and are pedestrian friendly for that matter. It's no big deal to walk across that. Pipe. Once you get used to doing that, I suppose walking across that pipe bridge, and you know there was a little trail over there. There's a trail going up to it from uh, uh, the little stub of the street that that's there, uh, Macaulay, I think. And then you go, you know, across the bridge, and you go up. Uh, there's a little trail that goes through a little field, and then you're up at the truck wash. It's no big deal. Uh, the killings were off to the right a bit over into the woods, but there's no reason to think that Damien, uh, who liked hanging around such places, didn't wasn't familiar with the woods as well. I mean, not just the part he walked through, but other parts. There's no reason to think that he was n- not familiar with that, and he was actually seen in there two weeks prior to the killings. Uh, the pipe over... The pipe over Ten Mile Bayou offered a significant shortcut between Lakeshore and his parents' trailer in South Broadway. And but despite that, and despite having lived in the neighboring Mayfair apartments, which were really uh, just on the other side of the Ten Mile Bayou, looking out over these woods, he testified he'd never been in Robin Hood Hills. Which, you know, that's just a manifest lie. He he contradicted himself in his own testimony. He said he'd never been there. The many said he walked through there two or three times a week. But, you know, Damien has no compunction about telling lies. Damien in Life After Death described his dissatisfaction with Domini and how he sought out his old girlfriend. I thought of Deanna frequently, Deanna Holcomb we're talking about, wondering what had happened. 
I found out Deanna's family had started attending church. The possibility of seeing her again plagued me. I couldn't get it out of my head. I constantly wondered what would happen, how she would react, what I would see in her eyes. Sunday morning found me preparing to descend into the hellish realm of fundamentalism. I had to do it or I would get no rest. Scanning the rows, I saw Deanna sitting in the dead center of the room with her family. I couldn't breathe. She looked at me and looked away. I didn't even see a flicker of recognition. What did that mean? I had been expecting something, anything. But her eyes passed over me as if I was not even there. When it was over, I walked outside and stood on the sidewalk. I was trying to figure out what this meant as I watched her family get in their car and drive away. Now, this is in Damien's book, Life After Death. And what he's doing here is describing what is nothing other than Damien stalking his old girlfriend. She made it pretty clear she didn't want to see him. And it's also pretty clear from his writing here that he had really no business being in church. But he was there anyway, and he was there for no other reason to, than to somehow make some sort of contact with Deanna. And, uh, you know, his fans will write this off as he's just a lovelorn teen. And, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. And, you know, there's a certain aspect to this that if you've lived long enough, you've probably done something similar to this. I, I have. You know, you ever driven by an old girlfriend's house just wondering what she's doing? Yeah, probably. I sort of, I've done that. I don't try. I used to do things like that more. I, as I've gotten older, I have less interest in trying to bring the misery on to myself. But uh, anyway, uh, he, uh, you know, he, he sort of incriminated himself here in, on a very low level of being, you know, kind of a creep. Uh, there are other more objective reports of Damien stalking or threatening. And by the way, when he does this, it's almost always either younger women, younger girls. And really, we're talking about girls. We're not talking about women. I don't know why I said women. We're talking about teenage or younger girls. And we're, talk or we're talking about children. Uh, Jesse Miscelli Jr. says that Damien went to the skating rink every Friday night. Uh, which is where he met his other girlfriend, 12-year-old Jennifer Bearden. But he was uh, there stalking boys, according to uh, Jesse. I have no reason to doubt Jesse. If Jesse says that, it sounds pretty good. Uh, on May 18, 1993, which is before Damien was arrested, Laura Ma Maxwell, who who dated Eccles at some point, gave a handwritten statement. Dated Damien, this is quoting from her, dated Damien, summer of 1991. He told me he used to be a knight in his past life that killed all these people. And he has written some books on witchcraft. He told me that he liked to get raw steak meat and suck the blood out. This one boy told me one time Jason Baldwin busted his nose and blood was all over the ground, so Damien got down on the ground and started licking the blood up. He used to say if he was out walking or something and he got thirsty that he would just like to take a baseball bat and knock somebody out and take a bite out of their neck and drink their blood. He never liked my brother. He told my friend he was going to kill him. He had it all planned out what was going to happen. And he told my friend and I that if we told Donnie about this, that he would kill us too. And if our parents found out and they tried to get involved, that he would just kill them too. He told my friend that he used to watch my house overnight and he knew everything that happened in my house every night. 
He also told one of his friends that one night while I was asleep, he snuck in my house and came in my room and did all this stuff to me. He used to talk, always talk about how much he hated little kids, and he used to always say this saying about cutting all your fingers and toes off one by one. When school started, he started going out with his other girl, Deanna Holcomb. And when she broke up with him, he went to her house and kept saying he was going to kill her if she didn't go back out with him. Now Barbara Dietart of Lakeshore Estates, which is a trailer park where Jason Ball and Dominique Tier lived, told police that uh, Baldwin and Eccles tried to steal her dog. Uh, so that, you know, the, the, we have that sort of thing where there's this allegation that these boys were trying to steal a dog. Um, and went, then on May 1st, 1993, just before the murders, Jennifer Ball reported to police that someone threatened to kill her by shouting through her window. Jennifer reported seeing a slim white male about 18 dressed in a black t-shirt, black jeans, and a black jacket make the threats, then enter the fenced-in backyard. And of course, Damien matched that, would have matched that description. And we'll find out she knew perfectly well who it was, but she didn't want to say because she was scared. Later, she gave a handwritten statement. The first contact I had with Damien Eccles was when he was at my window. I had heard about him and heard that he was into devil worshiping. About March 1st, I was on a three-way with Amanda Lancaster and Jack Held. <coughs> These were a couple of her teenage buddies. I was looking out the window and somebody jumped in front of it shouting, You bitch, I'll get you. I'm going to kill you. You're going to die. I started screaming and hollering. Amanda was hollering at me, Jennifer, what is wrong? Jennifer, what is going on? I told her that someone was at my window and it looked like Damien. I looked out the window to see if he was still there. He just glared at me and said, you're dead, bitch, and ran off. About five minutes later, she said, Jennifer, Jennifer, was Damien wearing pure black and a black trench coat? I said, yes. Why? She said, he's walking down the street and eyeing my house. She got really scared and started crying, and then her house alarm went off. Officer Reese came to our house. She asked me to describe Damien, asked me if I was sure it was Damien. I told her no. I was scared that if Damien found out I told, he would definitely kill me. So the person at my window was left blank. Well, about a month ago, I was in Kroger. I noticed that somebody kept passing by and looking at me. When I looked up, I discovered it was Damien. I just ran off. About three weekends ago, I went skating with Amanda Lancaster. We were having a good old time until Damien walked in. Well, me and Amanda were about two tables over from Damien, Jason Baldwin, and his girlfriend, Heather. That girlfriend, Heather, is Heather Quiet. Uh, Damien kept on staring at me. He looked up and no noticed that him and Jason were whispering deep. I looked up and noticed that him and Jason were whispering to each other and pointing at me. Damien whispered, whispered something to Jason, and Jason looked over at me and said, I don't know. Then Jason whispered something to Damien, and Damien looked at me. He looked me up and down and said, yep. Then Damien started saying something, and yes, Jason kept on saying, no, man, no. Well, finally, we left the table and went walking around. I noticed that Damien had followed us, not with his body, with his eyes. I had lost Amanda and was trying to find her. I went to the bathroom to see if she had walked in there. When I came out, Damien was standing there against the wall. I bumped into him. I didn't realize who it was until I looked up. When I looked into his eyes, it's like I froze. Well, some girl asked me to go buy her some candy and a Coke. I went, when I went to give it to her, I know she was at Damien's table. I just ran over there, handed it to her, and walked off. I could feel his eyes following me. Well, later I found out he was asking some people who I was. Damien watched us as we went out the building. Friday, after everybody had found out who murdered the little boys, I got a phone call. They said, well, you and your friend Amanda were the next to die by Damien and hung up.
I had heard that Damien was going to kill two more girls. Amanda kept on saying, I know those two girls were me and you. I knew they were. Now, beside the idea that he was going to kill a couple more girls ties into things he allegedly said at the uh, softball game about, yeah, I've killed a couple of girls and a couple of kids, and I'm going to kill a couple more, and then I'm going to turn myself in. Uh, the so-called softball girls testified to. Amanda Lancaster gave a handwritten statement. Heather Clyatt, Jason Baldwin's girlfriend, had told me that Damien had been asking me questions about me, about where I live, and my phone number. At the skating rink, he watched me and stuff. He would follow me around. He would just, like, watch me. He would really scare me, and somebody had told me that I was next. Me and Jennifer Ball were next. Um, you know, if you want to read this off as two little girls looking for you know, attention. Uh, Damien might not have been doing anything, but they're reading something into his lang body language or whatever. You know, you can do that if you want. I personally believe that Damien was doing, he was stalking these little girls uh, and having, having some fun doing it. He and Jason were, you know, playing a little game. Let's spook out this chick. And they did. They apparently did a pretty good job of it. Jennifer Ball's mother, Teresa Woodson, said Eccles had been identified by Jennifer in March and that she had seen Eccles walking in their neighborhood that same afternoon. Karen Bashir's McAteer described another encounter with Eccles. On a Sunday morning, approximately two to three weeks after the, before the triple murder occurred, my daughter and a friend were outside playing in my front yard at 515 Belvedere. We, they came into the house and said there was a man watching them from a bush one house away. I immediately went to the door and when I opened it, he got up from a squatting position and started to run toward Balfour Road. I called my husband and he and I immediately started looking for the man. We walked, we looked all over the neighborhood in the bayou behind Balfour. He just disappeared and we could not see him. The guy behind the bush was Damien Eccles. I saw him clearly and there is no doubt. My daughter said the guy had something in his hand. My daughter believed that he was taking pictures of her and her friend at the time. She said Eccles was wearing a black trench coat. The daughter, Jessica Bryant, 11, told police, it was a Sunday morning, and this boy just came walking down the street, and he was dressed all in black. And so we were just playing, and we looked over, and we saw him. He was behind the bush, and we continued playing, and he was still there, so went over and hid behind the car for a few minutes, and we thought he won't come out, so he will go away and leave us alone. And we went back, and he was still there, and so he was looking out of the corner of his eye at us. And so we didn't know what to do, so we went inside and told my mama, and he started running off, and then we don't know what happened to him. He had sort of long hair, dressed in all black, and, and a real long, black, long overcoat on with some black shoes on. He was just looking out of the corner of his eyes with his hands like this against him. He was like digging in his pockets. He had his hands in his pocket, I, but I don't know what he was doing. He was squatting down behind the bush. He was doing something in his pockets. He was like getting something out of his pockets or putting something back in. Well, bless her little heart. And I'm kind of glad that, you know, Jessica Bryant 11 didn't actually know what seemed to be going on there, but certainly sounds like Damien Eccles was playing pocket pool while he's watching, little, you know, prepubescent girls play in the yard. Really nice, huh? And it fits in with the, this pattern that we've described of him stalking people. Younger, younger people, not fully developed pe uh, people, boys and girls. Mark Byers told police, Mark Byers is the son of Christopher, I'm not the son, he's the father of Christopher Byers. Sometime between end of February, 
1993 and first half of March of 1993, my wife, Melissa, and myself went to a grocery store, a flash market on Ingram around four. We were gone about 15 to 20 minutes. When we returned home, Christopher was inside. When we came in, he started telling us about a man taking his picture. We asked, what he, did he look like Chris? And Chris said he was wearing a black coat and black pants and shoes, black, and had sort of long black hair. He said the man was driving a green car. Chris was playing under the carport when the man drove up. He said that he ran out into the yard because the man scared him. And we asked what happened, and Chris said he just took my picture, then he got in his car and left. And uh, Melissa Byers testified to the same set of facts. Now, of course, this is after the killings. <coughs> this is after the facts. Uh, there's a, supposedly Damien didn't drive, which doesn't, doesn't mean that he actually didn't drive because Damien lies. Damien can do things that he says he can't do, and he doesn't do things that we know he does, so he's a liar and uh, probably didn't have access to a car a great deal of the time, but doesn't mean he never had access to a car, and just because he says he doesn't drive doesn't mean he wasn't capable of driving. Uh, obviously, he chose to walk a great deal of the time, but does this prove that Damien Eccles was outside taking pictures of Christopher Byers before his murder? No, it doesn't do that. But it certainly raises a question, and particularly when there's not that many people in West Memphis who are described as having a black coat, black pants, black shoes, and sort of long black hair. How many people fit that description? Not many, but Damien Eccles does. And that's all I'm going to read today. I'm not sure about the audio quality. Hopefully, uh, hopefully this worked, and I won't have to totally repeat myself. But if I do, at least maybe I'll do better the next time. Um, and that's it for right now from the case against. Thank you. Testing, testing, one, two, three.